Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, more details emerge on when the Prime Minister's office knew allegations had been made against General Jonathan Vance. In 2018, my office was aware of the minister's direction to the ombudsman. But my office and I learned of the details of the allegation through news reporting over the past months. The list of policy proposals for next weekend's Conservative Convention does not include a motion regarding abortion. We have a grassroots party, and it's a big tent with different perspectives in it. As as leader, I was elected as someone that has a track record very clear on, on these issues with respect to rights, and I think they're very important. I'm pro-choice. And the government launches a website to track progress on drinking water advisories on First Nations reserves. We have a plan to get those remaining water advisories lifted, and, uh, and you need to see them. This is a promise that I made during that press conference in December when you said, um, when, you said when, 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 when will they all be lifted? Well, now people can look onto the website and see the detailed planning involved. It's Thursday, March 11th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us today. Morning, Mark. So, of course, it was one year ago today that the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. Many people are reflecting on this anniversary. There is a National Day of Observance as well. And I think what people are also focused on is, as we approach the midpoint of March, uh, kind of a milestone of when we were told the vaccines would start flowing across the country. What is the plan? So what's the latest on that? Well, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's a kind of a well-worn cliche now, but um, uh, while it has been a very long tunnel, we are starting to see the light. And um, yesterday, Major General Danny Fortan, who's the the military commander who's in charge of vaccine logistics uh, revealed that, um, didn't say it in as many words, but essentially it looks like there will be enough vaccine that by the end of June, everybody who wants a shot will, will get at least one shot. Um, the math is still slightly unclear because we don't know precisely how much of the, uh, the, Johnson, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that we're going to get uh, in that period. But it looks like there will be somewhere around 36 million shots available by the end of June. And we can see the ramp up already. Um, you know, we'd, we'd hoped, uh, look, uh, Justin Trudeau had committed to 6 million doses in the first quarter. It now looks like it'll be closer to 8 million doses. And then we start to see lots and lots of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine arriving between April and June, um, along with the reinforcements coming from from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, some of which is already starting to flow from, from India and others, uh, the bulk of it, of which will come from the United States. So, you know, it really does give people uh, cause for hope, I think. I mean, obviously, we're nowhere close to, to what's happening in the UK, where a third of the population has been vaccinated already. In Canada, it's only 5%. Uh, there have been vaccine disruptions in the past, and therefore, I guess, there could be vaccine disruptions in the future. But I think it is good news, and I think that uh, people can can uh, hope and expect that life will return to something close to normal by early summer. Hmm. All right, we will see what happens in the weeks ahead. Uh, let's turn to the allegations against the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance. The Prime Minister acknowledged yesterday that his office knew 
in 2018 that there had been an allegation. Uh, what does this mean in the context of uh, the political side of this story? Well, you know, as as with Watergate and just about every political scandal since then, it's it's not the actual act as much as the cover-up that is the the problem for the politicians. And here again, Justin Trudeau had said, well, he only found out about these allegations against Jonathan Vance from a global TV report on February 2nd. You know, subsequently it emerges that uh, there was a there were emails sent from the Department of National Defence to uh, the, the Privy Council office, the Prime Minister's office, uh, alerting them to these allegations. So now Justin Trudeau's story has changed somewhat, and he's now saying, "Well, my office was aware of the broad allegations of sexual misconduct against top Canadian Forces officers, but it was only in the global report that we found out the details." You know, this this is the hallmarks of the uh, the SNC scandal, where um, you know Trudeau stood up and said about three times that the Globe and Mail reporting is false. You know, it turned out that it was actually totally accurate. And I think that that this is a habit for for Trudeau is to willfully willfully mislead the public by suggesting that he was in the dark, that, that certain events didn't happen, and then when subsequent re- reporting suggests that it did happen, then the story changes. And I think that this is potentially a a big blow for the government, if only because they weren't frank with people in the first place. I mean, their first reaction is to uh, obfuscate and mislead. And you can sense that the heat is getting turned up on the government because when he was on a Montreal radio station being interviewed yesterday, the Prime Minister started blaming the Conservative government, saying that the Conservatives were aware of allegations and had investigated those allegations into Jonathan Vance and then appointed him anyway. So I don't think we've seen the end of this story yet. While we're talking about uh, the government's uh, challenges, let's uh, let's get into the subject of drinking water advisories on First Nations reserves. There's now a website to track the progress on that. And uh, Mark Miller, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, uh, was speaking about that yesterday. The government has a deadline that it's facing, so bring us up to date on that. Right, so, so uh, Miller had a, a press conference yesterday to celebrate the elimination of the 100th and the 101st long-term advisory, long-term being water advisories that have been in place for, for a year. Uh, that sounds like good news, but um, the problem was when, they, when they, uh, the Liberals were running for election in 2015, they promised that all of these long-term advisories would be eliminated by March 31st of this year. Uh, Miller, I think, is a, an excellent minister. I think he's a very uh, smart, sincere guy. But he was asked, do you regret the government putting forward this deadline? Now, he's he, he's so sincere. He's not a natural politician. And he couldn't bring himself to, to defend the uh, the uh, the March 31st deadline. And he kind of flushed and fumbled. And, uh, you know, he could, you could see that he, he thought this was a a pretty dumb commitment to make. But it was a commitment that, that helped them win the, the Liberals the election. It was, they, they were very ambitious in many of their promises, even though they must have known they were unlikely to, to fulfil those promises. I mean, as Miller said in his press conference, this is not a simple matter. Um, the, the, the Auditor General had looked at this problem in, in 2005, again in 2011, and found that you know, it was a pretty massive problem. Somewhere 
close to 45% of the 700 water systems were high to medium risk. That number has not changed, despite the fact that the government has pumped literally billions of dollars into this this issue. So we're, we're left with, even though the 101 long-term water advisories have been eliminated, another 54 have arisen. So we're left with 58 long-term advisories in 38 communities with three weeks to go until the deadline. And I think that, um, you know, the government has, has, under Miller, has since tried to address the problem by adding another $1.5 billion in the, the, uh, the fiscal update and by removing the requirement that First Nations fund 20% of the, the capital investment on, these, on, on any work that needs to be done. So that should mean that, that going forward, the, the remaining problems are addressed but this is a massive, a massive issue. I mean, the, the, the people are not only having to boil the water. In some cases, even if you boil it, you can't consume it. And in some places, you can't even wash, wash in it or wash, even wash your clothes in it. So, you know, I mean, I think that First Nations, if they are the first priority of this government, as Justin Trudeau has said repeatedly since being elected, this, they get, they got to get really serious about this issue. I think they are now serious about it, but... They, had, they made a commitment that they probably knew they couldn't, couldn't live up to. And I think that, that's a serious issue for democracy. I mean, if you win elections on promises that you don't keep, it creates cynicism. And we saw that before the last election, where only 22% of Canadians said they trusted the Liberals to keep their promises. And none of the parties got over 30%. Hmm. And I think that that cynicism leads to a trust deficit that then creates the conditions for populism and anti-establishment politics we saw in the U.S., and while it might not have been the abolition of the first-past-the-post system that the government also promised and discarded, it is a pretty egregious broken promise. All right, finally, uh, the Conservative Policy Convention is approaching, and we learned yesterday that uh, abortion will not be one of the topics that is debated, despite some efforts uh, by uh, some organizations to make that happen and to and to put some pressure on uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. So... Uh, does that put to rest this issue for now for the Conservative leader? No, I don't think it puts it to rest. I don't think it's a, a major surprise that, that there are no, uh, no no policies being put forward at a convention. I mean, I think any party worth its salt manages that convention so that embarrassments like an abortion vote don't happen. The social conservative wing of the party has tried to stack the delegate list. They tried to make sure that as many social conservatives are delegates at this convention as possible. They are not going away. They're obviously upset that O'Toole utilised their support to get elected in the first place. He promised he was a rock-ribbed, true-blue conservative and then has proven to be anything but kicking Derek Sloan out of the party and so on. So I think that there's still going to be a thorn in his flesh, but it looks like there will be no moment that actually crystallizes that uh, that schism in the party. Yeah. All right, John, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. Have a great day. And you, Mark. Thank you. That's John Iveson of the National Post. COVID-19 has taken a heavy toll on all of us, particularly seniors, those who are marginalized, and frontline healthcare workers. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason argues... But if we want to protect those most at risk of dying from COVID-19, the vaccine priority order should be obvious. Mason writes, 
Everyone wants a shot, and everyone has their own reasons for believing they deserve one ahead of someone else. But there is broad agreement that vaccinating elderly people ahead of essential workers is the way to go. That is not to dismiss the sacrifice that teachers and police officers have made this past year. It's about protecting those most at risk of morbidity or mortality. At National Newswatch, Don Lenahan and Andrew Balfour ask if Enbridge Line 5 could have a silver lining for the Trudeau Liberals. They write, This could be an opportunity for the government to send three messages to Canadians. First, we remain highly dependent on fossil fuels, a point well worth making. Second, standing up to the U.S. is always good politics for a prime minister. Third, the issue creates a forum to talk about the goal of net zero emissions by 2050 and how new partnerships can contribute to a carbon-free future. It could even be the starting point for a better relationship between Ottawa and the government of Alberta. In the National Post, Terry Glavin argues, we shouldn't expect Canada to act on genocide findings against China. Glavin writes, the federal government now has the credible investigation it wanted into Beijing's egregious treatment of the Uyghur minority. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continues to duck the issue. The government's rote excuse for inaction is that we must work with our allies. But when our allies act, Canada is absent. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Parliamentary Budget Officer will produce a report this morning on the cost of a private member's bill, which could be of immense help to Canada's persons with disabilities. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, the Parliamentary Budget Officer will release on his website a costing of Bill C-246. That's a private member's bill put forward by the NDP's health critic, Don Davies. It calls on the federal government to make one change to Canada's Income Tax Act. Namely, that people who currently claim the disability tax benefit under Canada's tax laws should receive free tuition at the country's post-secondary institutions. Or more specifically, that the tuition would be paid for by the federal government or the taxpayers of Canada. This is one of the more interesting functions of the Parliamentary Budget Officer, allowing members of Parliament to cost out a proposal, and in this case a piece of legislation, which could benefit a group in Canadian society which is currently at a net disadvantage in terms of education, employment and opportunity. Getting a costing for such a proposal helps further a meaningful debate. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will deliver a statement in the House of Commons to mark the National Day of Observance for COVID-19. He will also attend question period before hosting a call with provincial and territorial premiers. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will appear virtually before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Finance. She will also co-chair the first meeting of the Task Force on Women in the Economy, along with Associate Finance Minister Mona Fortier. Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne will announce an investment to support the development of a promising Canadian quantum computing technology. Small Business Minister Mary Ng will take part in the Minister's Panel at the Women in Business Forum, hosted by the Economic Club of New York. And Natural Resources Minister Seamus O'Regan will take part in the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada virtual conference. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, March 11th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.